Well, let's pray as we come to God's Word. Uh, Lord, we pray for the ability to still our minds now, when our minds can be just racing ahead with what we've got to do later today or with things that were said last night. Help us just to be able to quieten that so that we can focus now on you. Lord, it can also be that we're tired at the end of a weekend like this and so we pray for special strength to be able to concentrate and to be able to hear what you've got for us today. And Lord, we pray for courage that if you're calling us to change that we'll be keen to do that and humble enough to want to do that. Amen. Well, in 1994, it all became clear for Maury Schwartz, who was a much-loved sociology professor. He'd been experiencing a growing shortness of breath, he'd been falling over from time to time, and he'd noticed that he was starting to lose strength. And finally, someone diagnosed him with ALS, a degenerative neurological disease that meant Maury had only a year or two to live. On leaving the doctor's office, this sociology professor asked himself, well, what am I going to do now? Do I wither up and disappear, or do I make the best of my time left? And he decided he would not wither. He would not be ashamed of the fact that he was dying. Instead, he said, why don't I make death my final sociology project and make it the centre point of my days, since everyone was going to die He could be useful here, couldn't he? He could be research. He could be a human textbook. And he said to his students, study me in my slow and patient demise. Watch what happens to me. Learn with me. And out of that conviction came a book and a movie, you might know it, Tuesdays with Morrie, that describes the learning as the old professor and a student from 20 years previously in his past met week by week to ponder love, work, community, family, ageing, forgiveness and death. Maury and Mitch came to see that the unashamed pondering of death could open up for them wisdom about life. And that idea, of course, is as old as the book of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing like death to clarify the mind. And if you think about it, the questions of gain and fleetingness find their most pressing moment when you're staring down into somebody's coffin. So let's be brave enough to sit with the reality of our own deaths this morning and pray that through that pondering, God will make us wiser. Now, I guess you've been picking up that Ecclesiastes is not an easy book to interpret because its, its ideas are very profound and it does jump all over the place. And remember how I mentioned much disagreement even amongst conservative commentators about what this book's about. Well, on the topic of death, you could argue that Ecclesiastes is misguiding. It seems to think that death is just the beginning of nothingness. And so you might as well live it up now. I mean, listen to these verses. Go back in your Bibles to 3.18. Ecclesiastes 3.18. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. Now, if you tried to build a whole doctrine of death from that, you'd be misguided. But if he's just saying 
we like cows die, well then he's right. It's just trying to work out how far to push the implications of what he's saying. And you'll recall that we looked at chapter 9 the other day. If you can flick there now, chapter 9. Say there in verse 4, he says, Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Verse 5, chapter 9. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward and even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. And down in verse 10 he tells us to enjoy our current life and to, you know, to whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might in verse 10. Why? Because in the grave where you are going there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. So I think you could mount a case that the writer of Ecclesiastes has the kind of thoughts that the New Testament writers are just not to have. In the New Testament, life after death really matters. It's not just nothingness. And we do well not to live just for pleasure. But what I want us to see is that actually the writer of Ecclesiastes is closer to the New Testament and the rest of the Bible than we might think. And what he does offer us is a point of view that we do need to remember. I think in the passages that we've just looked at, he's simply saying, like animals, all human beings die. And being an Old Testament believer with an uncertain sense of what happens after we die, he does at least make the comment, something that I do know is that you can make choices while you're alive. I think that's really the point of his argument. You can make choices while you're alive. I know that. So you better make good choices. I think that's really what he's preaching to us. In fact, I think the writer of Ecclesiastes is very much like the rest of the Bible and he wants us to ponder our death so that we can think about where we stand with God. Have a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7 for some very interesting advice. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume, fair enough, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Huh? Uh, we celebrate birthdays in our family, but we don't really celebrate death days in the same kind of way. What's he getting at? See if he explains. Verse 2. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Do you think that? Much better to go to a funeral than to go to a birthday party. Hmm. Why? For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. What fascinating teaching from a book that so urges us to enjoy life. Enjoy life, but don't forget to go to funerals. Because you've got to look at coffins often so that you know you're going to die. It's amazing, amazing teaching. Um, I guess it's kind of a bit of a cliche that Victorian culture denied sexuality but talked about death a lot. And we're the kind of culture who doesn't deny sexuality one little bit. Um, 
but certainly tries to deny death as much as it can. So it's really good to have these words speaking to us. Now, as Christians, we do have a richer, fuller understanding of death and what happens next compared to the writer of Ecclesiastes. We know there is still consciousness and there's an eternal life with God. I'll just read you a little bit from Philippians 1. Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So Paul's got a fuller sense of what happens after we die than the writer of Ecclesiastes, but I think we can still pull their thoughts together. Now where I come from, I reckon a lot of Christians try and think about the whole issue of death and life after death and they start to then build an understanding of how we live the Christian life now. And it goes like this. I've tried to make it a six-point argument. One, we're all going to die. Two, life is short. Three, the only thing that allows us to survive death is faith in Jesus' death and resurrection for us. And so that's the most important thing. Four, I need to get as many people to believe that as I can before I die. Five, if that makes me tired and busy and means that I don't really enjoy my life now, that doesn't matter because six, I've got eternity to enjoy myself. Do you think like that? I do, a bit. I mean, I, live in a, I work in a missionary college that's often urging people to make very difficult choices with what they're going to do with their life. So there's, there's something in that theology that's part of how I operate and who I am. But there's something missing in it, isn't there? And I think that we need to listen to Ecclesiastes 11 and 12 and not reject it as pre-Christian or sub-Christian. One of the hard things about reading the Old Testament as New Testament believers, of course, is as we're reading texts here, are they replaced by the New Testament or are they assumed by the New Testament and do they have lasting relevance? I think when you're reading wisdom literature, because it's so based in the creation that still is the same creation, either side of Jesus, I think the messages of the wisdom literature tend to be timeless and still relevant to us today. So that's a lot of introductory stuff. So, but let's properly now look at Ecclesiastes 11. And just feel the warmth here. Light is sweet, Ecclesiastes 11.7, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. And didn't we all know that yesterday afternoon? That was our experience for all of us. However many years a person may live, let him or her enjoy them all. Now as an Australian, I just love that first feeling of hot sun on my back in summer, and I guess you do too. But I also enjoy the gentle embracing of soft sunlight in autumn, and that winter's day when there's just that triangle of sun on the grass at lunchtime and you stretch out your toes in and feel it. Ah, light is sweet and it really does please us to see the sun. And that's a kind of a way of looking at life that means, yes, we're going to enjoy the years that we've got. But isn't it amazing what follows here um, in verse 9? Be happy, young person, while you were young and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth, follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. Have you ever urged anyone to do that? 
Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. If you're from a Christian culture like mine, you're probably more likely to say, oh, you better not follow the ways of your heart. Your heart is wicked and you're going to go wrong. Oh, be careful about your ambitions. They might be misleading you. We're sort of scared and cautious. But the writer here is kind of saying, well, if you're the sort of person who fears God and who lives life in reverence to God, well, maybe, maybe some of the things in your heart are good things and you can follow them. Maybe as you notice the sun and the snow and the track in the bush and the chance to swim and the nice-looking girl who you want to go and talk to and the nice food over there, as you see all those lovely things in your heart, why not go and follow them and, and see where things go? So there's a course that you want to study, well, go and do it. There's a garden that you want to build, well, go and do it. There's a ministry that you want to develop, well, go and do it. Don't worry about them, just get up and do them. But not like some foolish sinner who thinks that they're going to gain by getting first-class honours and have an impressive garden and have an amazing ministry, but like a creature who's completely dependent on God and fully aware that God will bring you to judgment for the course you chose to study and the way you studied it. He'll bring you to judgment for the way you built your garden or for the way you developed your ministry. It's a strange combination of ideas, isn't it? Be happy, follow your heart, don't be anxious, you're going to be judged. <laughs> but that, that's, that, isn't that what the text is saying? That they're the ideas that are just being placed side by side. And the fact that we find them a little bit strange just sort of shows how we may have deprived our Christian life of some of its energy, I think. The writer of Ecclesiastes has a profound vision of the way life was meant to be lived. You enrol in a course of study because you just think archaeology is fascinating, say, but then you write every essay and read every textbook for the glory of God. You build a garden and every seed you plant and every watering can that you carry become an act of worship and an act of thankfulness. So if God judges you, well, that's okay, but I was carrying that water can with thankfulness and joy and worship in my heart. You start a ministry and every decision is soaked in prayer and offered to God so that you know it's okay to follow your heart and still be judged. And you find yourself really enjoying archaeology and your herb garden and your ministry and really enjoying God. I think it's deeply biblical that a life in which every dimension is soaked in God is a life of deep joy. Listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. And just notice how often we're in Matthew's gospel. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's so familiar, we may not notice, but that Jesus is not really talking much sense there. Are you really tired? Well, come to me and I'm going to put something really heavy on your shoulders. But, oh, by the way, the really heavy thing that I'm putting on my, your shoulders is really light. It, it's kind of weird, isn't it? I'm going to give you incredible responsibilities and, inc and accountability if you become a follower of mine. But boy, it's going to be good. It's going to be light. 
and you're going to find rest for your souls. What an amazing intertwining of follow your heart, you're going to be judged, wear the yoke, my yoke is light, and you will find rest for your soul. I've been trying to work out how do you actually live this out? How do you do the kind of responsibility things so that they're a joy? Well, um, every year part of my job at the Bible College is that I have to take about 15 students to a church or a school or somewhere and we do a week of mission together. It's normally very, very exciting and there's all kinds of interesting things you do, teaching in schools and visiting nursing homes and handing out invitations and hot cross buns at train stations, all kinds of creative things. But most churches seem to want you to go door knocking at some point. And I hate it. I hate the thought of door knocking. But I'm the team leader. Oh, door knocking today. What a great opportunity for the gospel, I say. Oh no, not door knocking. So in my recent expedition into um, door knocking, I thought, can I pull together a joy in the creation with this great sense of responsibility about sharing the eternal gospel of salvation with people? So I made a decision that as I went door knocking, I was also going to look at people's gardens and just notice what plants grow in mid-autumn in this suburb. I was going to look at the architecture of people's houses and try and work out if I could describe what decade the house was built in. And I was particularly going to notice letterboxes. Our letterbox at home has been blown up by some pesky teenage boys. <laughs> and so I'm in the market for a kind of funky replacement letterbox. So I, I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. So off I went, evangelism, tracks in hands, questionnaires, prayer, commitment to talking about Jesus. But along the way, I'd notice how many funky letterboxes I could see. And then with that kind of attitude, door knocking started to change for me. I found myself in a conversation with a lady who was grieving the slow death of her husband in a nursing home. And it was very poignant because she's raking autumn leaves and she's talking about her husband slowly dying. And we just talked together like human beings about death and suffering. And she talked about how she didn't believe that God loved her anymore. And I talked about, well, when my daughter died, it really did seem to me that God did love me. And we, sort of, we shared our sadness and our stories. And it was sad, but it was joyful and it was real. And I didn't feel like I was being constrained to talk about Jesus. I felt... I was just free to talk about the Jesus who loved me and who was real to me and who I wanted to share with this lady because I could see her pain. That strange intertwining of responsibility and joy, all because the whole thing could be soaked in the God who was there with us. I feel like the Bible is actually asking me to imagine a way of living as a Christian that acknowledges that the days are short that the time is urgent, but that I don't have to be burdened and busy. I'm, I see that the Bible's urging me into an obedience that is so connected to God himself that it makes me smile, not stressed. Now I reckon I've got a lot of work to do in this area, but I'm hoping that this is the beginning of, of many fruitful conversations that I have with you and with others around the world about how do we live our Christian life in this kind of way. In a weekend devoted to trying to work out what's going on in Ecclesiastes, I hope that you're looking for God in everything and enjoying his goodness in everything. 
and that's really going to start to change you. However many years a person may live, let him or her enjoy them all. Ecclesiastes urges us. But Ecclesiastes is not prosperity theology or glib pain-denying theology. Sure, we're called to rejoice in, in the world, but this book never denies for a moment that the world that we're rejoicing in contains mourning and tears and hatred and throwing away and war. But it's about accepting all of that that, is, that in some way it's come through the hand of God. Perhaps this is really just about believing what James teaches us. James 1.17 Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the vapours or like the shifting shadows. Joy is really important to the writer of Ecclesiastes because one day it appears to him that it will stop. He hasn't seen Jesus rise from the dead. He he hasn't got much information about life after death. So you can, you can forgive him for wondering if joy stops when we die. One day you will be dead and it won't be easy then to make you smile, he notices. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is not completely sure what's going to happen next. But he really wants us to come to terms with the fact that we are going to die. Now, many of you probably live in an age bracket where the thought that you're going to die is deeply hard to believe. And so Ecclesiastes 12 is a really important text for you this morning. Now, in our culture, when we want an idea to really make an impact, I think more and more we make a movie about it. And what, we can discover, what we've discovered we can do with movies is that we can make the pictures wider and wider and wider and bigger We've now discovered that we can make them 3D in a convincing sort of way. And of course we can put a whole big orchestra score underneath them and we can make the speakers in a cinema incredibly loud. So when we go to the cinema now, it's just a full-on sensory experience and it's somebody really using every resource of the arts community, I think, to try and entertain us, but in the end really probably to try and persuade us of something. Now, what does somebody in the ancient Near East have when they really want to convince you of something? They don't have 3D technology. They don't have surround sound. They can't send you to a cinema. So I reckon they write a poem. I think that's their big... They call on their arts community and they write a poem. So this is what we've got in Ecclesiastes 12. So it's like you're going to a 3D movie here. And that's actually not a bad analogy because when you read the commentaries on Ecclesiastes 12 and look what's happened in the interpretation over the centuries... This poem has been read in three or four different ways and they all kind of work. So I think it's a three-dimensional poem, like we've got funny glasses on. So put your funny glasses on and I'm going to look at the poem as though it means one thing and then we'll notice something else. Some people have thought this is a poem about old age. It says, verse one, chapter 12, verse 1, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come. And the days of trouble has been taken to mean the days when you're old and dottery. And so then you sort of read the poem almost like an allegory. Look at verse 2. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark. That's probably your eyes. Not, you can't see very much anymore. Verse 3. The keepers of the house tremble. Well, they're your hands and they're starting to shiver. And the strong men's too. They're your two legs and they're starting to bend. 
the grinders cease, there your teeth, they're falling out because they are few. And those looking through the window grow dim, and perhaps again your eyes aren't working. The doors to the street are closed, you're a bit constipated perhaps, is some, it was one, <laughs> is one interpretation. The sound of grinding fades, you're not, you, don't, you can't eat meat anymore and so on. So that, that could be what this poem is about. And boy, I'll tell you what, if you, if you go searching through centuries of commentary, what all the different parts of the body that may be on view there are, are rather interesting. I mean, look at the, um, you can imagine what a grasshopper might be. The grasshopper drags himself along because de- desire no longer is stirred. The poor old man. <laughs> so it could be about an ageing body here that just doesn't work the way it used to. And it's sort of not, it's the days of trouble. It's not very fun. But other commentators have thought, well, it's not so much that this body is ageing, it's more that it's just dying. It's just in the final, very seconds, and it dies. So the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark. It's not just that you're going blind, it's just that you stop seeing because you're dead. And there's this trembling as you die. And so, verse 4, the doors to the street are closed. There's no way now that you're going to access life because you're dead. And maybe even an undertaker has come into the room and shut your eyes to to signify that you're death. And men rise up at the sound of birds in the ancient Near East. There's a dead body in the room. Well, who arrives? The women. And they sing like birds and they begin to lament and wail, and men are afraid. And, and what happens um, at the end of verse 5? That man goes to his eternal home. There's a dead body here. Somebody has gone to eternity, and mourners go about the streets. Verse 6, remember him before the silver cord is severed, the golden bowl is broken, the pitcher is shattered, the wheel broken. Silver and gold are precious, and a pitcher and a wheel are kind of the basics of water and movement. They're the basics of life and everything precious and everything associated with life is finished. It's severed, broken, shattered, broken. So this could be a way of saying, remember God before you're dead. Other people say, well, actually look at verse 4. If the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, what's really happening is that a village has shut down for the day. And this isn't a picture of a human body, it's a picture of a village. And some people think what it's describing is a funeral. There's a, it's a funeral day and everyone has shut down their business and the grinding has ceased and the picture, we're not drawing water at the well, we're not doing any of those things because we're all at the funeral. Then another possibility is that this is describing the end of the world. If you pick up a book like Isaiah or Joel or something like that and and it says to you the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, well then you know that that, that in that kind of literature that's describing that the whole world is coming to an end. So that's profound, isn't it? That your ageing body could be the dead body, it could be the funeral happening, even that funeral one, some people even say the town is being invaded by soldiers, and then that can take us to God's judgement has come, and it's even the end of the world. So I love this poem because it's saying to us in in lots and lots of ways, can't you see that you are going to die and that with the death of every single individual body 
in a sense, the end of the world comes. Death is coming to us all and it's going to be like the end of the world. When that um, sociology professor Mori got his diagnosis, he stood out, got out of the doctor's office and he stood on the street and saw cars going by and people heading to the shops. And he thought, why hasn't everybody stopped? I've just been told that I'm going to die. And he couldn't believe that business was continuing. And, and I, I, I really get that. When we got news, uh, we got an 18-week eight, ultrasound that um, our daughter was going to die once, we, once she was born and we cut the umbilical cord. Once we'd got that news, we went to buy a cup of coffee and I said to the lady, our baby's going to die. To this complete stranger, it was sort of a bit inappropriate really, but for me, the, the end of the world had come. Our baby was going to die and I just had to tell someone because it, it was very significant. And, and it's kind of like here, one human body has died and yet the sun has stopped shining. The light has stopped. The moon has stopped because the world has come to an end. Ecclesiastes 12 wants us to see that death is coming, it's the end of the world, and it's undeniable that it's going to happen to us. Jeremy Taylor was a 17th century clergyman who also wanted us to see that death was inevitable, it was certainly coming. And interestingly, he thought of our lives as like a vapour or as fragile and transient as a bubble and he began to meditate on how our bubble might burst. He said, death meets us everywhere, by violence and secret influence, by the aspect of a star and the stink of a mist. This is 17th century language, so just enjoy it. By the emissions of a cloud and the meeting of a vapour, by the fall of a chariot and the stumbling at a stone, by a full meal or an empty stomach, by watching at the wine or watching at prayers, by the sun or the moon, by heat or a cold, by sleepless nights or sleeping days, by water frozen into the hardness and sharpness of a dagger, or water thawed into the floods of a river, by a hair or by a raisin, by violent motion or sitting still, by severity or dissolution, by God's mercy or God's anger, by everything in providence and everything in manners and everything in nature and everything in chance. Death is coming. Fleeting, transient and puzzling and momentary as mist. Everything is mist, says the teacher, and you'd better believe it. But the teacher probably doesn't really believe that there's nothing after death. Did you see something in verse 7? The dust will return to the ground it came from, but he does think that the spirit returns to God who gave it. And in verse 14, at the end of the book, he or maybe someone who's finally compiled the book writes, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing. So there's going to be a judgment after we die. Now, of course, we need to notice that this whole discussion of death, in a way, was just an aside to make us take two commands seriously. Have a look with me at 11... Uh, 11.9, there are two commands really that are holding this passage together. Sorry, I meant verse 8. 11.8, however many years a man may live, let him enjoy, there's a command, let him enjoy them all. We might summarise it as rejoice, but let him remember 
the days of darkness. There's the other command. Remember. And see chapter 12 verse 1? There it is again. Remember your creator. All this meditation on death is really to get you to take that command seriously. Remember your creator. And it's this kind of teaching that makes me think the writer of Ecclesiastes is not some heretic or unbeliever, but like the rest of the Bible writers, he wants us to soak our lives in a reverent fear of God. Sometimes we'll, there'll be an awareness of God's generous provisions that mean we rejoice, and sometimes there'll be an awareness of God's right to judge, which will mean that we remember. We remember him, we keep him in mind every minute. Well, let's just notice how this amazing book ends, verses 13 and 14. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Some commentators think this is different from the advice of the rest of the book. And indeed, the language has changed. Yes, it's not rejoice and remember anymore. It's fear God, it's keep his commandments. More sort of conventional Old Testament talk, more like the book of Deuteronomy, I think. But I think we can pull it all together quite nicely. Here in verse 13, it says to fear God. Now, if we fear God, we give up our wordy, boastful plans and we see ourselves as dependent creatures. That then means we start to experience life as a series of gifts from God and those gifts bring us joy. So I think the person who fears God does turn into the person who rejoices. And then what about keep his commandments? Well, if we, if we keep his commandments, we enter into a way of being human that works and people should begin to notice our wisdom and joy too. If we, you know, taking on the commandments is like taking on the yoke that becomes light and that gives us rest. So I reckon this fear God and keep his commandments is consistent with the way that I've been saying rejoice. But then verse 14 with this talk about judgment also gives us that other R word, remember. Remember that you're going to be accountable to God. Rejoice and remember. As an Australian, one of my greatest experiences of vulnerability is that of bushfire. Now we've had a little bit of time in Belfast and we've seen the murals and the falls on the Shankles roads, which is kind of an experience of vulnerability for you guys here. If you were to come to my um, little village of Waramu, I could walk you around some streets and show you some brand new houses and they're brand new because only five or six years ago they were burnt to the ground through the bushfires and, and they've needed to be re rebuilt. I guess for all of us, we've had an experience this weekend of being vulnerable because snow can fall and can make us feel really cold or can mean that we can't travel somewhere or can delay our flights. But I wonder if you can sort of not go white with me, but go black and see if you can come with me and meditate on bushfires a bit. When I was working on some of these talks, there were some horrific bushfires in Victoria and um, they really sort of brought home to me a lot of the issues of the book. Why would you live for gain when life is fleeting and could be consumed by fire in a moment? Why do you think that you can know the future and control it when you're a tiny creature who could be burnt by fire in a moment? 
And why would you not remember God the judge when you could be standing before him any moment? <coughs> Richard Flanagan, an Australian writer, wrote an essay about the Victorian bushfires recently and he wrote this. Everyone knew someone who had lost someone and everyone had a story and every story was the tip of something huge and beyond any telling or hearing. It made as little sense as the way day had turned to night the roar beyond description as the fire approached, the tar melting, the trees falling and cars smashing, the people panicking, the people even more puzzled, simply watching the sight of the dead, the inexplicable, even ridiculous way you might live. There was a couple who ran across the road and took shelter in the Kinglake West Corner Shop, a brick building, as the fire barreled down the main road toward them. They looked down in relief only to see gas bottles, and so they turned and ran back across the road to their house and just as they made it to the other side, the gas bottles exploded, blowing out the back of the shop. Everyone had a story, even those who weren't there on the day of the fire. There was a man who said he'd had a fight with his wife and so she'd walked out on him on Friday and he decided on midday Saturday to go down into the city of Melbourne to work for the day and now they were alive and reunited and aware of the irony that had allowed this to be so. All around us were people frying onions and hamburgers and sorting clothes, people ash-smeared and fire-exhausted, people still to grieve and people unable to be grateful, people reaching out to each other, people looking out for one another and discovering the extraordinary in themselves. Beyond us, the police teams were turning over tin, turning up more and more dead, Yet everywhere I looked, I saw only the living helping the living, people holding people, people giving to people. At the end of an era of greed, at a time when all around are crises beyond understanding and seemingly without end, here, in the heart of our apocalypse, I had not been ready for the shock of such goodness." It's a moving account of how humans can behave in tragedy beautifully written, but deeply flawed. Because it's trying to rejoice in human potential, in the extraordinary in us, the goodness in us. But it's not giving God the glory for any of that. If the writer of Ecclesiastes had been there, he would make us look at the dead bodies that the police were revealing. He would make us look at the ash and the charcoal so that we would know that God is our judge and that we would weep and cry in the knowledge that God is powerful and often mysterious and this world is full of frightening things that make no sense to us at all. If the writer of Ecclesiastes had been there, he would run up to the wife who was unexpectedly alive and say, thank you God for this great gift. He'd stand above the barbecue and smell the onions and hamburgers and say, Thank you, God, for agriculture and seasons and for people who stand by people in times of need. He'd sort through donated clothes and see every garment and every fibre as gifts from the hands of the creating, sustaining God. I wonder if the people who survived the fires will be permanently changed or if we add five years to their lives, will they just become busy and greedy again like everybody else? Will they resent God? Will they despise his mysterious ways? 
Well, the book of Ecclesiastes invites us to look face on to the horror and the joy of the bushfire world we live in and still to rejoice in God. The book's big commands are these. Rejoice, remember. Rejoice, look for the delightful gifts of simply being alive in this thrilling, fleeting creation. Remember, live every day fearfully, reverently aware that you are the work of a vast creator, sovereign Lord and accountable to him as a just judge. I reckon we're always going to remember this weekend as the snow weekend. The snow came along and humbled us. It made us run late. It made us feel cold. The snow came along and it thrilled us. It gave us something to slide on and it gave us something to take photographs of. And all of this from the hands of our stunning God. Amen.